0: Chapter Thirteen Part Two of Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. Chapter Thirteen Part Two. It was with a bitter sense of humiliation that he cursed, again and again, the mischance of having encountered this man in the pawnbroker's shop. The only comfort he had in the recollection was Mr. Tigg's voluntary avowal of a separation between himself and Slime that would at least prevent his circumstances, so Martin argued, from being known to any member of his family, the bare possibility of which filled him with shame and wounded pride abstractedly there was greater reason perhaps for supposing any declaration of mr tiggs to be false than for attaching the least credence to it but remembering the terms on which the intimacy between that gentleman and his bosom friend had subsisted and the strong probability of mr tiggs having established an independent business of his own on mr slime's connection it had a reasonable appearance of probability at all events martin hoped so and that went a long way his first step, now that he had a supply of ready money for his present necessities, was to retain his bed at the public house until further notice, and to write a formal note to Tom Pinch, for he knew Pecksniff would see it, requesting to have his clothes forwarded to London by coach, with the direction to be left at the office until called for. These measures taken, he passed the interval before the box arrived, three days, in making inquiries relative to American vessels at the offices of various shipping agents in the city, and in lingering about the docks and wharves with the faint hope of stumbling upon some engagement for the voyage as clerk or supercargo or custodian of something or somebody which would enable him to procure a free passage. But finding soon that no such means of employment were likely to present themselves, and dreading the consequences of delay, he drew up a short advertisement, stating what he wanted, and inserted it in the leading newspapers. Pending the receipt of the twenty or thirty answers which he vaguely expected, he reduced his wardrobe to the narrowest limits consistent with decent respectability, and carried the overplus at different times to the pawnbroker's shop for conversion into money. And it was strange, very strange, even to himself, to find how, by quick though almost imperceptible degrees, he lost his delicacy and self-respect, and gradually came to do that as a matter of course, without the least compunction, which but a few short days before had galled him to the quick. The first time he visited the pawnbrokers, he felt on his way there as if every person whom he passed suspected whither he was going— and on his way back again as if the whole human tide he stemmed knew well where he had come from when did he care to think of their discernment now in his first wanderings up and down the weary streets he counterfeited the walk of one who had an object in his view but soon there came upon him the sauntering slipshod gait of listless idleness and the lounging at street corners and plucking and biting of stray bits of straw and strolling up and down the same place, and looking into the same shop windows, with a miserable indifference, fifty times a day. At first he came out from his lodging with an uneasy sense of being observed, even by those chance passers-by on whom he had never looked before, and hundreds to one would never see again, issuing in the morning from a public-house. But now, in his comings out and goings in, he did not mind to lounge about the door, or to stand sunning himself in careless thought beside the wooden stem, studded from head to heel with pegs, on which the beer-pots dangled like so many boughs upon a pewter tree. And yet it took but five weeks to reach the lowest round of this tall ladder. O moralists who treat of happiness and self-respect, I neighed in every sphere of life— and shedding light on every grain of dust in God's highway, so smooth below your carriage-wheels, so rough beneath the tread of naked feet, bethink yourselves, in looking on the swift descent of men who have lived in their own esteem, that there are scores of thousands, breathing now, and breathing thick with painful toil, who in that high respect have never lived at all, nor had a chance of life." "'Go ye who rest so placidly upon the sacred bard who had been young, and when he strung his harp was old, and had never seen the righteous forsaken, or his seed begging their bread. "'Go, teachers of content and honest pride, into the mine, the mill, the forge, the squalid depths of deepest ignorance, and uttermost abyss of man's neglect.' And say can any hopeful plant spring up in air so foul that it extinguishes the soul's bright torch as fast as it is kindled? And, O ye Pharisees of the nineteen-hundredth year of Christian knowledge, who soundingly appeal to human nature, see that it be human first. Take heed it has not been transformed during your slumber and the sleep of generations into the nature of the beasts. FIVE WEEKS of all the twenty or thirty answers, not one had come. His money, even the additional stock he had raised from the disposal of his spare clothes, and that was not much, for clothes, though dear to buy are cheap to pawn, was fast diminishing. Yet what could he do? At times an agony came over him, in which he darted forth again, though he was but newly home, and returning to some place where he had been already twenty times, made some new attempt to gain his end, but always unsuccessfully. He was years and years too old for a cabin-boy, and years upon years too inexperienced to be accepted as a common seaman. His dress and manner, too, militated fatally against any such proposal as the latter, and yet he was reduced to making it, for even if he could have contemplated the being set down in America totally without money, he had not enough left now for a steerage passage and the poorest provisions upon the voyage. It is an illustration of a very common tendency in the mind of man, that all this time he never once doubted, one may almost say the certainty of doing great things in the new world, if he could only get there. In proportion, as he became more and more dejected by his present circumstances, and the means of gaining America receded from his grasp, the more he fretted himself with the conviction that that was the only place in which he could hope to achieve any high end, and worried his brain with the thought that men going there in the meanwhile might anticipate him in the attainment of those objects which were dearest to his heart. He often thought of John Westlock, and besides looking out for him on all occasions, actually walked about London for three days together for the express purpose of meeting with him. But although he failed in this, and although he would not have scrupled to borrow money of him, and although he believed that John would have lent it, yet still he could not bring his mind to write to Pinch and inquire where he was to be found. For although, as we have seen, he was fond of Tom after his own fashion, he could not endure the thought— feeling so superior to tom of making him the stepping-stone to his fortune or being anything to him but a patron and his pride so revolted from the idea that it restrained him even now it might have yielded however and no doubt must have yielded soon but for a very strange and unlooked-for occurrence the five weeks had quite run out and he was in a truly desperate plight when one evening having just returned to his lodging and being in the act of lighting his candle at the gas-jet in the bar, before stalking moodily upstairs to his own room, his landlord called him by his name. Now, as he had never told it to the man, but had scrupulously kept it to himself, he was not a little startled by this, and so plainly showed his agitation that the landlord, to reassure him, said it was only a letter. "'A letter?' cried Martin. "'For Mr. Martin Chuzzlewit,' said the landlord, reading the superscription of one he held in his hand. "'Noon. Chief Office. Paid.' Martin took it from him, thanked him, and walked upstairs. It was not sealed, but pasted clothes. The handwriting was quite unknown to him. He opened it, and found enclosed, without any name, address, or other inscription or explanation of any kind whatever, a Bank of England note for twenty pounds. To say that he was perfectly stunned, with astonishment and delight, that he looked again and again at the note and the wrapper, that he hurried below stairs to make quite certain that the note was a good note, and then hurried up again to satisfy himself for the fiftieth time that he had not overlooked some scrap of writing on the wrapper, that he exhausted and bewildered himself with conjectures, and could make nothing of it, "'but that there the note was, and he was suddenly enriched, "'would be only to relate so many matters, of course, to no purpose. "'The final upshot of the business at that time was "'that he resolved to treat himself to a comfortable but frugal meal in his own chamber, "'and having ordered a fire to be kindled, went out to purchase it forthwith. "'He bought some cold beef and ham and French bread and butter, "'and came back with his pockets pretty heavily laden.' It was somewhat of a damping circumstance to find the room full of smoke, which was attributable to two causes, firstly to the flue being naturally vicious and a smoker, and secondly, to their having forgotten, in lighting the fire, an odd sack or two, and some trifles which had been put up the chimney to keep the rain out. They had already remedied this oversight, however, and propped up the window-sash with a bundle of firewood to keep it open, "'so that except in being rather inflammatory to the eyes "'and choking to the lungs, the apartment was quite comfortable. "'Martin was in no vein to quarrel with it, "'if it had been in less tolerable order, "'especially when a gleaming pint of porter was set upon the table, "'and the servant-girl withdrew, "'bearing with her particular instructions "'relative to the production of something hot "'when he should ring the bell. "'The cold meat being wrapped in a playbill,' Martin laid the cloth by spreading that document on the little round table with the print downwards and arranging the collation upon it the foot of the bed which was very close to the fire answered for a sideboard and when he had completed these preparations he squeezed an old armchair into the warmest corner and sat down to enjoy himself he had begun to eat with great appetite "'glancing round the room, meanwhile, "'with a triumphant anticipation "'of quitting it for ever on the morrow, "'when his attention was arrested "'by a stealthy footstep on the stairs, "'and presently by a knock at his chamber door, "'which, although it was a gentle knock enough, "'communicated such a start to the bundle of firewood "'that it instantly leaped out of window "'and plunged into the street. "'More coals, I suppose,' said Martin. "'Come in.' "'It a liberty, sir,' "'Though it seems so,' rejoined a man's voice. "'Your servant, sir. Hope you're pretty well, sir.' Martin stared at the face that was bowing in the doorway, perfectly remembering the features and expression, but quite forgetting to whom they belonged. "'Tapley, sir,' said his visitor. "'Him as formerly lived at the Dragon, sir, and was forced to leave in consequence of a want of jollity, sir?' "'To be sure,' cried Martin. "'Why, how did you come here?' "'Right through the passage and up the stairs, sir,' said Mark. "'How did you find me out, I mean?' asked Martin. "'Why, sir,' said Mark, "'I've passed you once or twice in the street, if I'm not mistaken. "'And when I was a-looking in at the beef and ham shop just now, "'along with a hungry sweep, "'as was very much calculated to make a man jolly, sir, "'I see you a-buying that.' "'Martin reddened as he pointed to the table, "'and said somewhat hastily, "'Well, what then?' Why, then, sir, said Mark, I made bold to foller, and as I told him downstairs that you expected me, I was let up. Are you charged with any message that you told them you were expected? inquired Martin. No, sir, I ain't," said Mark. That was what you may call a pious fraud, sir, that was. Martin cast an angry look at him, but there was something in the fellow's merry face, and in his manner, "'which, with all its cheerfulness, was far from being obtrusive or familiar that quite disarmed him. "'He had lived a solitary life, too, for many weeks, and the voice was pleasant in his ear. "'Tapley,' he said, "'I'll deal openly with you. "'From all I can judge, and from all I have heard of you through pinch, "'you are not a likely kind of fellow to have been brought here by impertinent curiosity "'or any other offensive motive. "'Sit down. I am glad to see you.' "'Thank you, sir,' said Mark. "'I'd his leave stand.' "'If you don't sit down,' retorted Martin, "'I'll not talk to you.' "'Very good, sir,' observed Mark. "'Your will's a law, sir. "'Down it is.' "'And he sat down accordingly upon the bedstead. "'Help yourself,' said Martin, "'handing him the only knife. "'Thank you, sir,' rejoined Mark. "'After you've done.' "'If you don't take it now, "'you'll not have any,' said Martin. "'Very good, sir,' rejoined Mark. "'That being your desire, now it is.' "'With which reply he gravely helped himself,' and went on eating. Martin, having done the like for a short time in silence, said abruptly, "'What are you doing in London?' "'Nothing at all, sir,' rejoined Mark. "'How's that?' asked Martin. "'I want a place,' said Mark. "'I'm sorry for you,' said Martin. "'To attend upon a single gentleman,' resumed Mark, "'if from the country the more desirable, makeshifts would be preferred, wages no object.' He said this so pointedly that Martin stopped in his eating, and said, "'If you mean me—' "'Yes, I do, sir,' interposed Mark. "'Then you may judge from my style of living here of my means of keeping a manservant. "'Besides, I am going to America immediately.' "'Well, sir,' returned Mark, quite unmoved by this intelligence, "'from all that ever I heard about it, I should say America is a very likely sort of place for me to be jolly in.' Again Martin looked at him angrily, and again his anger melted away in spite of himself. "'Lord bless you, sir,' said Mark. "'What is the use of us a-going round and round, and hiding behind the corner, and dodging up and down, when we can come straight to the point in six words? I've had my eye upon you any time this fortnight. I see well enough there's a screw loose in your affairs. I knowed well enough the first time I see you down at the Dragon, that it must be so sooner or later.' Now, sir, here am I, without a situation, without any want of wages, for a year to come, for I saved up—I didn't mean to do it, but I couldn't help it—at the dragon. Here am I, with a liking for what's wintersome, and a liking for you, and a wish to come out strong under circumstances as would keep other men down, and will you take me, or will you leave me? "'How can I take you?' cried Martin. "'When I say take,' rejoined Mark, I mean, will you let me go?' And when I say, will you let me go, I mean, will you let me go along with you? For go I will, somehow or another, now that you've said America, I see clear at once that that's the place for me to be jolly in. Therefore, if I don't pay my own passage in the ship you go in, sir, I'll pay my own passage in another. And mark my words, if I go alone, it shall be to carry out the principle in the rottenest, craziest, leakingest tub of a vessel that a place can be got in for love or money. So if I'm lost upon the way, sir, there'll be a drowned man at your door, and always a knocking, double knocks at it, too, or never trust me. This is mere folly, said Martin. Very good, sir, returned Mark. I'm glad to hear it, because if you don't mean to let me go, you'll be more comfortable, perhaps, on account of thinking so. Therefore I contradict no gentleman. But all I say is that if I don't emigrate to America, in that case, in the beastliest old cockle-shell as goes out of port, I'm... "'You don't mean what you say, I'm sure,' said Martin. "'Yes, I do,' cried Mark. "'I tell you I know better,' rejoined Martin. "'Very good, sir,' said Mark, with the same air of perfect satisfaction. "'Let it stand that way at present, sir, and wait and see how it turns out. "'Why, love my heart alive, the only doubt I have "'is whether there's any credit in going with a gentleman like you "'that's as certain to make his way there as a gimlet is to go through soft deal.' This was touching Martin on his weak point, and having him at a great advantage. He could not help thinking either what a brisk fellow this Mark was, and how great a change he had wrought in the atmosphere of the dismal little room already. "'Why, certainly, Mark,' he said, "'I have hopes of doing well there, or I shouldn't go. I may have the qualifications for doing well, perhaps.' "'Of course you have, sir,' returned Mark happily. "'Everybody knows that. "'You see,' said Martin, leaning his chin upon his hand, and looking at the fire, "'ornamental architecture applied to domestic purposes can hardly fail to be in great request in that country, "'for men are constantly changing their residences there and moving further off. "'And it's clear they must have houses to live in.' "'I should say, sir,' observed Mark, "'that that's a state of things as opens one of the jolliest lookouts for domestic architecture that ever I heard tell on.' Martin glanced at him hastily, not feeling quite free from a suspicion that this remark implied a doubt of the successful issue of his plans. But Mr. Tapley was eating the boiled beef and bread with such entire good faith and singleness of purpose expressed in his visage, that he could not but be satisfied. Another doubt arose in his mind, however, as this one disappeared. He produced the blank cover in which the note had been enclosed, and fixing his eyes on Mark as he put it in his hands said, Now tell me the truth. Do you know anything about that? Mark turned it over and over, held it near his eyes, held it away from him at arm's length, held it with the superscription upwards and with a superscription downwards, and shook his head with such a genuine expression of astonishment at being asked the question, that Martin said, as he took it from him again, No, I see you don't. How should you? "'though, indeed, your knowing about it would not be more extraordinary than its being here.' "'Come, Tapley,' he added, after a moment's thought. "'I'll trust you with my history, such as it is, "'and then you'll see more clearly what sort of fortunes you would link yourself to if you followed me.' "'I beg your pardon, sir,' said Mark, "'but afore you enter upon it, will you take me if I choose to go. "'Will you turn off me, Mark Tapley, formerly of the Blue Dragon, as can be well recommended by mr pinch and as wants a gentleman of your strength of mind to look up to or will you in climbing the ladder as you're certain to get to the top of take me along with you at a respectful distance now sir said mark it's of very little importance to you i know there's the difficulty but it's of very great importance to me and will you be so good as to consider of it if this were meant as a second appeal to martin's weak side Founded on his observation of the effect of the first, Mr. Tapley was a skilful and shrewd observer. Whether an intentional or an accidental shot, it hit the mark fully, for Martin, relenting more and more, said, with a condescension which was inexpressibly delicious to him after his recent humiliation, "'We'll see about it, Tapley. "'You shall tell me in what disposition you find yourself to-morrow.' "'Then, sir,' said Mark, rubbing his hands, "'the job's done.' "'Go on, sir, if you please. I'm all attention.' Throwing himself back in his armchair, and looking at the fire with now and then a glance at Mark, who at such times nodded his head sagely to express his profound interest and attention, Martin ran over the chief points in his history to the same effect as he had related them weeks before to Mr. Pinch. But he adapted them, according to the best of his judgment, to Mr. Tapley's comprehension, and with that view made as light of his love affair as he could, and referred to it in very few words. But here he reckoned without his host, for Mark's interest was keenest in this part of the business, and prompted him to ask sundry questions in relation to it, for which he apologized as one in some measure privileged to do so, from having seen, as Martin explained to him, the young lady at the Blue Dragon. "'And a young lady as any gentleman ought to feel more proud of being in love with,' said Mark energetically. "'Don't draw breath.' "'Aye, you saw her when she was not happy,' said Martin, gazing at the fire again. "'If you had seen her in the old times, indeed!' "'Why, she certainly was a little down-hearted, sir, "'and something paler in her colour than I could have wished,' said Mark, "'but none the worse in her looks, for that. "'I think she seemed better, sir, after she come to London.' Martin withdrew his eyes from the fire, stared at Mark as if he thought he had suddenly gone mad, and asked him what he meant. "'No offence intended, sir,' urged Mark. "'I don't mean to say she was any the happier without you, but I thought she was a-looking better, sir.' "'Do you mean to tell me she has been in London?' asked Martin, rising hurriedly and pushing back his chair. "'Of course I do,' said Mark, rising too, in great amazement from the bedstead. "'Do you mean to tell me she is in London now?' "'Most likely, sir. I mean to say she was a week ago.' "'And you know where?' "'Yes,' cried Mark. "'What, don't you?' "'My good fellow!' exclaimed Martin, clutching him by both arms. "'I have never seen her since I left my grandfather's house.' "'Why, then,' cried Mark, giving the little table such a blow with his clenched fist that the slices of beef and ham danced upon it, while all his features seemed, with delight, to be going up into his forehead and never coming back again any more? "'If I ain't your natural-born servant, hired by fate, there ain't such a thing in nature as a blue dragon. "'What? When I was a-rambling up and down a old churchyard in the city, getting myself into a jolly state, didn't I see your grandfather a-toddling to and fro for pretty nigh a mortal hour?' didn't i watch him into todgers's commercial boarding-house and watch him out and watch him home to his hotel and go and tell him as his was the service for my money and i had said so afore i left the dragon wasn't the young lady a sitting with him then and didn't she fall a laughing in a manner as was beautiful to see didn't your grandfather say come back again next week And didn't I go next week, and didn't he say that he couldn't make up his mind to trust nobody no more, and therefore wouldn't engage me, but at the same time stood something to drink as was handsome? Why, cried Mr. Tapley, with a comical mixture of delight and chagrin, where's the credit of a man's being jolly under such circumstances? Who could help it when things come about like this?' For some moments Martin stood gazing at him, as if he really doubted the evidence of his senses, and could not believe that Mark stood there, in the body, before him. At length he asked him whether, if the young lady were still in London, he thought he could contrive to deliver a letter to her secretly. "'Do I think I can?' cried Mark. "'Think I can? Here, sit down, sir. Write it out, sir.' With that he cleared the table, by the summary process of tilting everything upon it into the fireplace— "'snatched some writing materials from the mantel-shelf, "'set Martin's chair before them, forced him down into it, "'dipped a pen into the ink, and put it in his hand. "'Cut away, sir,' cried Mark. "'Make it strong, sir. Let it be wary pinted, sir. "'Do I think so? I should think so. "'Go to work, sir.' "'Martin required no further adjuration, "'but went to work at a great rate while Mr. Tapley, installing himself without any more formalities into the functions of his valet and general attendant, divested himself of his coat, and went on to clear the fireplace and arrange the room, talking to himself in a low voice the whole time. "'Jolly sort of lodgings,' said Mark, rubbing his nose with a knob at the end of the fire-shovel, and looking round the poor chamber. "'That's a comfort. The rain's come through the roof, too. That ain't bad.' A lively old bedstead I'll be bound, populated by lots of vampires, no doubt. Come, my spirits is a-getting-up again. An uncommon ragged nightcap this. A very good sign. We shall do yet. Here, Jane, my dear, calling down the stairs, bring up that there hot tumbler for my master, as was a-mixing when I come in. That's right, sir, to Martin. Go at it as if you meant it, sir. Be very tender, sir, if you please.' You can't make it too strong, sir. End of chapter 13